Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is uh, September the 10th, 2014. This is episode 1423 of the Survival Podcast. And uh, I've got a good one for you today. Don't know when you're going to hear it. Right now, as I'm recording this, I'm doing so without the aid of anything online. Because my internet has gone down. So it doesn't prevent me from recording, but it does prevent me from publishing. So we'll see how long that lasts. Hopefully by the time I'm done talking today, they'll have things back up. And hopefully by this afternoon at 1 p.m. they'll have it back up because I have going to have Mike, new Mike Cromwell on for you guys tomorrow and I have to interview him at 1 and I really can't do that without the internet. So, uh, We'll see. Hopefully we don't have to delay that. I've been looking forward to having new Mike on. He's been a great contributor on the blog for quite a long time now, and I'm excited that he has uh, thrown his hat in the ring as a guest. Today's show is going to be on becoming a great teacher. What makes a teacher a great teacher? Um, the way I got this subject, yesterday I went on Facebook and I said, TSP Nation, what do you want tomorrow's show to be about? Holy crap, that took like 25 seconds for like a 100 comments to come in, some really good suggestions. A lot of them were like, well, I want to do that show for you, but it's going to take more than you know an evening to prepare. I'm going to have to take some time to put a show together. And then I saw one on teaching, and I thought, you know what, I talked a lot about teaching, and I've said many times that I feel my life's work is teaching. That's, that's what I do. That's what I love is to teach, and that's what this show is all about is me taking the information I have and disseminating it and helping people learn, which I think is actually the, the real definition of teaching is helping people learn, not, not putting what you know in their brain. And uh, I do that through both direct teaching and through bringing guests on to interview them and to facilitate the dissemination of that knowledge. But I've never talked about teaching as a skill and how to develop it. I have some interesting thoughts on that for you guys today. And I'll have them for you in just a bit. Before I do that, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors today. Sponsor of the day, number one today, is HarvestEating.com, the awesome, the illustrious, the cool Chef Keith Snow, who uh, does a really great job on his website. He has great YouTube videos that show you how to cook and teach you how to cook great recipes. He's got a great podcast, and he's got some of the most awesome seasoning and spice mixes I've ever used anywhere. I mean, I rely on his stuff on a daily basis. If you don't think cooking is a survival skill, I'm going to put it to you this way. You never lived on MREs. I have, and I'll tell you what, cooking is definitely a survival skill. Uh, so get over to HarvestEating.com, check him out. Remember, he does give discounts to members of the Support Brigade, and he's got some special deals put together for you as well. Check him out today, HarvestEating.com. Next up today, KnifeKits.com. I'm talking about a skill of teaching today. Well, there's also what I call hard skills. So teaching is something I consider a soft skill. Now, you might use the soft skill of teaching to teach a hard skill, like If I knew how to make really good knives, I could sit down and teach you the hard skill, but the teaching itself is the soft skill. The thing about hard skills is they're highly transferable. So if you learn the necessary fit and finish techniques to fit the handle on a knife, all of a sudden there's this incredible other group of things you can do. Or if you learn how to make a kydex sheath for that knife, then all of a sudden it opens up this whole Pandora's box.
box of things that you can do with Kydex. Uh, and you might put that Kydex together with rivets. And then once you learn how to do that, that opens up this another thing, the concept of if I can fasten two things together this way. Right? And then if you learn how to sharpen, then it's not just knives that you can sharpen. You can see that knife making and knife crafting, even if you start out with a simple kit, is really a great way to improve your hard skills and how to learn those skills. And you'll find today when I talk that teaching and learning are forever intricately entwined. And it's not just because somebody's learning when you're doing the teaching, but you're learning when you're doing the teaching. Anyway, check out KnifeKits.com. Remember, they do offer a discount for the member support brigade as well. And, guys, that is how I pay the bills around here is the MSB, the member support brigade. Consider joining. You do that. You support this show at 5 bucks a month or 50 bucks a year. Military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty, and prior service, and first responders like EMTs, paramedics, and firefighters. All of you guys qualify for a discount. And, uh, you know, if you want that discount, email me before, not after you join. Put uh, service discount in the subject line. And tell me who you are and what you're doing and or who you are and what you did. I'm going to pause here at this point in the show today, and I'm going to cover a little thing, uh, kind of a side thing. Um, number one, I want to talk to you guys real quick about something that happened a couple weeks ago. And I also want to tie it into answering a question that was asked of me yesterday. I'll start out with a question that was asked of me yesterday. Uh, the question was, my number one question for you, Jack is why do you give a discount to people that are being paid by the government? And specifically, people that are paid by the government to conduct military and police-style operations. And my response was, being blunt, and uh, and just not feeling like answering it at that very point was probably rude, but yet the guy took it pretty well. I just basically said, that's a pretty stupid question. And the guy emailed me back and said, I'll do some soul-searching. I admit that if I was in a wreck, I'd want one of these guys coming to help me. And I emailed him back. I said, look at it another way. Try asking the question different. Why do I give a discount to first responders and military and police who listen to this show on a daily basis, listen to me beat the hell out of the very system that they're part of, and still come back for more and want to support what we're doing? And he responded with, damn it, Jack. And that's really the answer. The people that are that are here from the military and law enforcement communities and other first responders understand full well the problem we have, and they're doing their best they can to be part of the solution. And if they weren't, they wouldn't be here. There's no way a police officer listens to this show and is the kind of officer that's out there beating somebody with a nightstick just because he can. That guy doesn't listen to this show, and if he does, he doesn't listen to it for very long. And that's... Uh, I have some really interesting news for you guys today about something that I, I just came across. And I can't look it up, so I'll just put the link in the show notes. Um, but before I explain that to you, I want to say something about what happened a couple weeks ago. I mentioned in one of my rants that the United States Post Office employs thieves. You might wonder how this relates to the military law enforcement thing. But just hold on for a second. So I said the uh, Post Office employs thieves, and that if you send me silver, you better make damn sure it's packaged well and they can't tell what's inside of it and it's hard to get it out. And I said that to you for a variety of reasons. One, if you send me silver, I'd like it. Because what happens is it, it, there's been some people, you've had your silver stolen, we just give you your account. I, I don't hold you responsible for the mail stealing your silver. So it's, it's happened to people. So I, I like my silver. I, I, I don't make a living by giving away MSB. So th that was one. But the other reason is I, until 
I started running TSP and in seeing the modern version thereof had always implicitly trusted the post office. That I just felt that, that if something got stolen in the post office, it was very, very, very rare. And it was not common at all. And that it was such a high-risk behavior because it's a federal crime. And there's a certain amount of integrity with being part of the post office. And of all the government agencies that I didn't trust, I trusted the post office. I have seen multiple instances of theft in the, in the Postal Service. So I said something. And I said it to you for two reasons. One, so if you send me silver, I get my silver. But two, so that you don't implicitly trust. And I'll tell you, if anything of any value to you is going anywhere, it's worth the money to put insurance on it because all of a sudden it doesn't get stolen. It's, it's amazing how that works. It's not, it's not so that if something happens to it, it's covered. It's so that it doesn't get stolen. That, that's really how I feel about it. We actually had, uh, years ago, and this was my first indication something wasn't right, we had a box of knives being sent for the old gear shop that Tiffany and Rich used to run. And we had engraved TSP 2010 on them and a little logo. And it was the, tr uh, the, uh, the Swiss Army Trekker knife. And uh, it was really cool. I think I have one of the only ones that's around anymore, uh, other than people that maybe have one. They're old-timers to the show. And we had 200 of them that were custom engraved, and they were being shipped from our engraver back to us. And fortunately, they were insured. Uh, well, we had insurance, but not I, I don't remember exactly how this was. Let me just tell you the rest of the story. Somebody at the post office in Utah cut the side of the box open, slipped out one fifty knife case, packaged it back up, and the knives arrived missing fifty. And we were able to get something done with insurance. So I don't remember exactly because I wasn't directly involved with this. So this was even with insurance of some sort. And maybe, but it might have been the business's insurance that covered the loss, not the post office's insurance. I'm not sure. I do know what happened next. One of the thieves was stupid and used a clearinghouse to sell the knives, and they put it on eBay. And they put on there the very rare TSP collector's edition. Unfortunately for those idiots, um, there were only 200 of them in the world, and they had a quantity 50 available for sale, and we were missing 50. That made it pretty cut and dry. I got turned over to federal authorities, and a whole ring of thieves went down out of that post office. So that was my first indicator that something was wrong. But then seeing the constant theft and the constant attempted theft of silver when people send me silver for MSB has shown me how common it is. We also had a time where Tiffany and Rich, who ran the old gear shop, sent me some gear to a hotel um, through the USPS, priority mail, a bunch of stuff to be put out on a table for an event, and a bunch of it was stolen. Just random gear from the post office, priority mail. So I've seen that. So how does this relate back to police officers? So one time, one time on the air, I said, The United States Post Office employs thieves, and, and make sure you, you, you know that so that you don't implicitly trust them. I heard from four butthurt postal workers, four, whining and crying, and it's only a tiny fraction, and it's less than one-tenth of one percent, and I'm like, bullshit. It's not less than one-tenth of one percent. It's probably not 50 percent. It's probably not 20 percent, but it's probably five or ten percent of you are stealing shit. And what's amazing to me is how butthurt they were. How does this title law enforcement? I've been ripping the piss out of law enforcement for years, saying that the officers that stand idly by and don't speak up are oath breakers, that the ones that commit abuses on citizens are oath breakers. I have been tougher on law enforcement 
than any other group of people out there in this audience. And guess what? How many police officers over six years do you think I've heard from butthurt or upset with what I had to say? The answer is zero. None. Not one. Not one officer has ever emailed me and said, it's only 1%, you're so mean, or some bullshit like that. Not one. And when I thought about that, as, as upset as I get with law enforcement at times, I have a new found respect for law enforcement just from that. Just from that. Now, how does this tie into what I have to tell you about today? And I think maybe I've got internet back. Uh, that might be helpful with this little segment. So anyway, yes, it's back up. So um, I, on, on the whole note of, of re- having a high degree of respect for the law enforcement officers that do their job well, I believe that good officers are completely okay with people knowing their rights and standing up for their rights and having someone speak for them on behalf of their rights and not just being stupid and doing whatever the cop says because the cop said so. And uh, and if you're not okay with that, then I really don't give a shit because you're not a good cop. So today I get this email from a guy that a guy named Jeff who runs a, a podcast. He calls it, but I, I see it more as a YouTube channel um, because it's I don't oh it does it is on iTunes so that's cool. Um, but I guess he does it in video, so he puts it out on YouTube as well. And uh, it's called Anarchast. Like anarchy, anarchist, but anarchist. And he said, would you like to be on my show? And I said, yeah, I'd be on your show. And I looked up his site, and I found his most recent episode, 152, with a guy named Orion Martin, who is part of a a product a project called Sidekick that's at sidekick.co, and it's K-I-K, S-I-D-E-K-I-K.co. They're currently running an Indiegogo campaign to raise money. And I thought, well, I'll, I'll listen to this episode to get a feel for who this guy is and whether I really want to be on his show or not. And this Orion Martin guy is a freaking genius. He's working with some other people, and they're trying to raise about a quarter million dollars to fully develop this project. I just backed it for 250 bucks. I'm going to ask you guys to consider backing it. Uh, if everybody in this audience backed it for $10, uh, they'd be over halfway there come Monday, right? Anyway, they're trying to raise this money to develop this app, and this is the way this app is going to work. You get pulled over by the police, you pull the app up, the app immediately starts recording everything in audio and video that's going on and uploads it to multiple secure servers. So they can take your phone away, they can smash it, they can do whatever they want. The video exists, it's on It's on everywhere. This is actually the magic part, though. They're setting up a, a global network of attorneys, and you will be immediately connected to an attorney, and you can tell him what your situation is and... You say, at this point, I'm conferred with counsel, and he's advised me not to speak to you. You may speak to my attorney, and you hold the phone up for the cop to talk to the attorney. Um, you know all these abuses of power by police officers? It's either stopping, or it's going to be recorded to the point where it's indefensible with this type of technology. I think it's brilliant. And I think if you're a good cop, you should like this. You should be all for this. And if you're a bad cop, don't give a shit. But I do want to again say, after ripping the shit out of police officers over the years, and I've heard from a few like, hey, you know, you got this wrong about this I- instance or, or what have you, but actually I've never heard anybody whine, bitch, complain, moan, gripe, or grouse about 
me being tough on law enforcement and calling them to a higher standard. Yet you make one comment about the post office and four butthurt postal employees get in touch with you and whine. I don't know that says anything really bad about the post office at all. I just think it says something really, really unique about the men and women that serve in uniform and listen to this show. Thank you for your service. I appreciate it. And I figure if you're listening to me, you must be doing a good job or you wouldn't be able to tolerate it. But this this uh, sidekick thing, I'll have a link to the Indiegogo campaign in today's show notes and to the episode on the Anarchast where Orion comes on and talks about this app. Again, I have backed it. I'd, I'd like to request that you guys consider backing it. Um, it is the type of thing we need. And it's it's taking actions towards solutions versus bitching and expecting somebody else to do it. I've seen a lot of um, people say they want the cops to wear be required to wear cameras and have that all recorded and made publicly available. Well, folks, no matter how they do some of those things, they're not going to do it the way you want it. If we want it done our way, we have to fund it, we have to make it happen, and we have to do it. Um, I'm all in on this one. I'm all in. Again, I, I gave him a couple, you know, a couple hundred bucks. Um, if I hadn't just done a major home improvement and this wasn't a slow time of year, I probably would have gave him more. Anyway, with that, let's do the history segment, and then we'll talk about being a teacher. I know this is kind of a long intro, but the, the truth here is that, uh, you know, this is really the meat and blood of the show in some ways. Today's history segment, China, a tale of two currencies or no bull, Pamponia united or else. If you want to read Pamplona United or else, pop, I'm sorry, Pamplona United or else. Pamplona United or else. If you want to read that, you can do that at TSP Wiki. I'm going to read China, a tale of two currencies. Ever since throwing off Mongol rule, China has been struggling to build an economy and especially a means of exchange. In other words, they need their own money. At this point, most exchange is being done by barter. The Ming Dynasty is issuing paper money, as the Mongols had done before, but it soon becomes worthless, even though it can be exchanged for copper coins, theoretically. No matter how many laws they pass prohibiting the use of using precious metals as a means of exchange, the people continue to use silver on the sly. In certain areas where barter is inefficient, a measure of silver is called a tail. About 40 grams of silver is now accepted as legal tender. This concession by the government will become the norm, and the use of paper money will fall over time. FYI, tail is an English word borrowed from the Portuguese word, borrowed from a Malaysian word for weight. Well, I want to say that again. It's an English word borrowed from the Portuguese word, borrowed from the Malaysian word for weight. It is related to the word tolerance in the sense of measuring. My take by Alex Shrugby puts these together for us. The United States once issued paper silver certificates that could be exchanged for silver. Theoretically, it required the trust that the government would exchange the paper for silver. In the days of the Wild West, after President Andrew Jackson's economic policies, Paper chests were issued to railroad workers who walked over to a boxcar and exchanged the paper immediately for gold. It was an exercise to get the workers to use paper money as a means of exchange. Many of those workers were Chinese. Additional information, Andrew Jackson killed the second bank of the United States, the Federal Reserve of the day. It needed to die, but its death, its, in its death throes, confidence in paper money was shaken. While Jackson was well-meaning, everything he knew about economics could be stuffed into a thimble. He placed the U.S. government spending on a cash-only basis, which followed by wild swings in the economy, because the U.S. spending, and even in those days, was an economic force all of its own. And, uh, boy, there's a huge can of worms that I'm not going to go into there today. I could do a whole show on just that. I will say this. You can't pass a law to make people see value in something that has no value. You can trick them into doing it, but a law alone won't get it done. That's my take. All right, so let's talk about becoming a great teacher. And I, I want to start out with something that I think a lot of people don't understand. 
and that is that everybody can be and should be a teacher. Teachers are not born. They're made. They're manufactured. And teachers also tend to have either really high levels of talent of certain things that are useful in teaching, or they don't have high levels of talent there. So if you're an interesting speaker, when it comes to teaching in the form of the verbal component of teaching, you're going to be a better teacher than someone that doesn't. That's, that's, and I think because of that, people say, well, they're a natural teacher. No, they're a natural speaker, and they're using that skill in their teaching. Because if you're really good at doing something with your hands and you're teaching a methodology that's mostly how to do something with the student's hands, you don't need to say as much. You need to more do and guide and help the student learn. And you can teach that way because that's your strength. And But then a person will say, well, that person's really a great cabinet maker and, and they're teaching other people to make cabinets as apprentices, so they're a gifted teacher. No, he's a gifted cabinet maker that's using his strengths to teach. And you say, well, I'm neither, so I really am not a teacher. I'm just not. And and that's, that's short-sighted uh, because you will never be a complete student unless you're a teacher. Anyone who's ever taken martial arts knows it's not very long before the student that begins to advance is brought to the head of the formation and, and, and asked to lead a class through exercises. Well, this is not just so your primary instructor can go take a break. It is because that student learns more by teaching than he does by being taught. Okay? And that's a fundamental reality. And then the next thing we need to understand is that we've been misled and lied to. Shocking, I know, that society would mislead and lie to us about education. But they do. And what we've been taught, right, think about that, is that teaching is some kind of a magical thing, that a person has to go get a degree, and then they have to be certified with a license by a state institution. And once they have their degree and their certification, and then they've been blessed by being hired and given the title of teacher, then they're qualified to educate our children. And I'm not just talking about that academic level of teaching today. But that belief, that pervasive belief that that is what makes a person a teacher is why so many people look at teaching as just spooky and I can't do it and there's no way I could ever teach my kids algebra or whatever. Well, if you got through algebra, you can teach kids algebra. All right. And before I even explain why that's the case, let's start out with this. I am a slow runner. I run slow. I mean, if you lined up 50 people and we all ran a 50-yard dash against each other, it's a good chance that I'll come in last. And this has always been the case. I played football, and I was a running back. How the hell do you have a slow running back? I was a short yardage, push through, bust through a hole, get a couple yards running back. I was not a break-down-the-field running back. I was, uh, you know, I would be put in many times in position as a halfback position to be a lead blocker for that faster runner. So I could run, just can't run fast. Now you, now imagine if I were to say, well, I can't run. And imagine if I would say, nothing that I do will make me a better runner. Wouldn't those both be stupid statements? I could become a better runner. I'm actually not a bad distance runner. And, you know, that spending time in the military maybe helped with that, but I never struggled with running. 
So you get a formation together. We're going to run six miles. Okay, no problem. You know, you want to sprint? Sorry, can't handle it. I just don't have the speed. It's not there. Does that mean I can't learn to run faster if I tried? And let me put it to you this way. Would not a being, some extraterrestrial being or something like that, that, that didn't have legs like we do, didn't have bipedal motion the way that we do, if they saw me run across the field chasing one of my chickens, for instance, because I needed to get them back into the other place, wouldn't they say that that being runs really well? Look at him do it. He's doing it right now. This is how teaching is. Right, Just because someone is a great speaker and can get up in front of a room of, of 50 people and really captivate their attention, and you don't necessarily have that natural inclination and talent, number one, doesn't mean you can't develop it and be much better at even that type of teaching. But it also doesn't mean you can't teach. If you've, if you've shown your child how to tie their own shoes, you've taught This is why I say, if you can get through algebra, then you can teach your child algebra. Probably better than most teachers, because you know how you got through it. And in some instances, it's not so much learning, and it's getting through it. That's how our educational system is set up to work today. You get through it, you get the right letter grade, you're okay, you go on with your life, you'll never use that shit again. A lot of it. And people know it, and that's why they don't take it seriously anymore. They take the, the, the effort required to do what gives you the stamp of approval seriously, but the acquisition of knowledge is not taken seriously by the average student in school anymore. Now, a person that's going to go into a line of work and is thinking that way already as a young person that will require the mathematics will take the mathematics seriously because it's important to them. It's part of being a great teacher is determining what's important to your students and teaching them that or using that with to teach them, all right, to understand what they know already, what they're familiar with, and to ground back that which you're teaching to them back to what they already know. See, I also want to kind of say today, and, and then I'm going to get off the school teaching thing totally. By the way, like I said, I've never heard from a cop upset about my comments about cops, which I'm so much harder on than teachers, but I've heard from a lot of butthurt teachers. Don't bother. It's not going to change my opinion. Um, but I want to start with what do teachers mean when they say they want parents, quote, involved in education? What does that actually mean when teachers say that? Well, let's start out with what it doesn't mean. It, it doesn't mean they want you teaching your children. It, no, they don't want that. You might figure out that what they're doing is not that complicated, and, and, and you might actually teach them things they don't want the kids to know yet. And you might actually teach the kids how to think critically, and then they might actually question some of the bullshit that's fed down the pipe to them as being necessary or required or true. So they don't mean that they want you teaching the child. They don't mean that they want you seeing to your child's education. They don't mean that. Some teachers are really pissed at me right now. I'm sorry. And when I tell you the truth, you might get more angry, but you'll know it's true. This is what teachers mean when they say, I want parents involved in education. There's two components to our modern education system. One is knowledge, and the other is behavior. Okay, And we spend an awful lot of time focused on behavior, And that means that during that time we're not focused on knowledge. Behavior means I want everybody to sit down in their seat and look forward and face the teacher. I don't want you to not question anything. You can ask questions when I tell you, but do not question the teaching. Just ask the parts that you don't understand, and then I will tell you, and then write that down and remember it. Okay? This is behavioral. The bell rings, get up, go here, sit down there, etc., 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 Behavioral. I've given you an assignment. I want it done. 
All right? I've given you a report with a deadline. I want it to come back to me the way that I asked it to be prepared. So where's the parent fit in this? What the educational system means when they say they want parents in education to be involved in the education of their children, they want you involved at the behavioral level. Your, your child is given an assignment by the teacher. They want you to make sure your child does it the way they were asked to do it and turns it in on time. Okay? They want your child to sit down in, the, in, a, in a chair for eight hours a day, and they want you to make sure your child knows how to do that. But they don't want you teaching your child the TSP daily history segment. They're not really interested in that. They're not necessarily opposed to it, but they're sure not interested in it. They don't want you actually teaching your child how to learn. See, that's their job. right? Now, the only reason I even bring that up today is because so much of the word teach has been in our minds locked into education system. So if somebody walks up to you and says, what do you do for a living? And you say, I'm a teacher. Now that could mean anything. That could mean you teach survival skills and wilderness skills. That could mean that you teach permaculture. That could mean that you teach people how to fish. That me could mean that you teach people how to, um, to program computers. But as a private teacher that people seek out almost like a consultant when they want to take their programming to a higher level. It could mean so many things. But if, if someone says, I'm a teacher to you, what do you immediately think? They're a school teacher. First one, elementary, high school, college, what? It's not college because then they would be professors, right? Bullshit. Just bullshit. Just bullshit. When people have to make titles to feel important, it's bullshit. Anyway, so you think school, teacher, school. If I did a word association, you know, I say dog, you think cat. I say green, you think brown. I say wet, you think dry. Right? I say teacher, you think school. Very, very simple. Because of that, we have been willing to assign to ourselves limitations on our ability to teach because it's something that's done in school with this organized structure by this certain way and you have to have a license or a certification from the state to do it. It's special. And of course, teachers are heroes, which is one of the stupidest things that the American people have ever been led to believe in the history of planet Earth. Teachers are not heroes. Teachers are teachers. They're doing a job. Some teachers are amazing teachers that do amazing things and make children really learn in amazing ways. And some of them are very heroic in the way that they do things. I look at them and think, that is a person I'd like to be like. And that, to me, is more what a hero is than someone that throws themselves on a grenade. When a person sets an example, and I think I would aspire to be like them, they're a personal hero to me. And some teachers are that way in school and out of school. If you look up today's show notes, you'll see a picture of Jeff Lawton there. And it says Jeff Lawton is one of my personal teachers. I have learned more from Jeff about permaculture and permaculture thinking and how it applies to life outside of permaculture than any other person on planet Earth. And I've actually met him in person one time. 
at Permaculture Voices last year in California. And he was my mentor and my teacher for years without even knowing my name because I followed everything he did and I learned from his example. To me, Jeff is one of my heroes. Okay, That doesn't mean I'm putting him on par with somebody that saves 23 people from a burning building, but that's the kind of hero he is to me. To say that all teachers are that is moronic and stupid, but it's been sold to you. And even those of you who have let go of a lot of this programming, when it comes to teaching, this is why the question would even be asked, how do I become a teacher? It's because you believe at least some of this is still stuck in you. That there's this, this magic formula in, I bless you, a teacher, and thou shalt go forth and educate thy kindergartners. Oh, no. No. That is just stupid thinking. And tied into yesterday's show, it's designed program thinking so that you will accept the things that you're told. So before you can ever think, how do I become a good teacher, you need to figure out that everything I've just told you is the truth, and none of it's necessary to be a teacher, and none of it is even usable to determine whether or not you're teaching or not, and whether or not you're good at it or not. Because if you're judging yourself on somebody else's metric that doesn't apply to what you're doing, you're going to end up with a low score and you're not going to feel good about what you're doing. That is going to make you less motivated to do better and you're not going to get better. And if you're going to be a teacher, you should be getting better every freaking day. That's part of what's wrong with the educational system today. Okay? Instead of teachers learning how to be better teachers, they're getting more and more education. That's it. They take classes in the summer. So what? So do I. That doesn't make you a hero. But what are you taking a class on? Post-secondary educational formulaic blah, blah, blah. How about teachers should be taking classes on how to speak? That's what they should be taking. How do you speak? How do you engage creatively with another human being? Well, that's section 104. No, no. But they're not going to, so you have to. It's the most important skill you can develop is, is, is teaching ability so that you can teach your children and your friends and your family members and anybody else that you come across and wants to learn what you have to teach. And it actually is a very easy formula to be a good teacher. And it's, it's really a four-step formula. There's only four steps to becoming a great teacher. And it's really, really simple. Step one. Develop passion for things that are important to you. Figure out stuff that you really care about, that you're interested in, that you love, that you want to be involved with. Okay, And develop a passion for it. Whether it's history or science or a hard skill like mechanical uh, skills or bushcraft, whatever it is, develop passion for it. Really understand what motivates you to be gravitating toward that and interest in it. And then develop knowledge and experience with those things, whatever they are. How to fix a car, what happened in 1610, whatever it is, doesn't matter. Develop knowledge and experience. So don't just learn the information, but apply the information. So if it's academic learning, then you need to do things like additional research and connect it to other events and, and, and become almost sleuth-like in your approach to it. But develop knowledge and experience with those things. Okay. Step three, show and tell others about those things. Step four, repeat. If you don't repeat 
that. If you don't continue to develop passions and new passions and continue to develop your experiences and your applicational knowledges, then you, you end up being a terrible, terrible teacher. You become mundane and boring. And what about all the other things I said, like becoming a better public speaker and things like that? Why isn't that in there? I'll tell you why. And, and, and I'm going to be fair here to academic teachers in schools and explain why they can't do this. In, in many instances, they can't do this uh, as I get there. But let's start out with subject matter as, as, as the student desires to learn about it. So if I got on the air today and said, hello... This is Jack Spearco. And today, you'd be like, oh my God, give me a gun so I can blow my brains out. This guy's got to go. He's got I cannot listen to this, okay? And it wouldn't matter that I'm talking about preparedness because you'd never get to the point where you'd listen long enough to get to the subject. But the subject matter does matter, and I'll explain how that works. I'll make it very real for you right now. I'm teaching you how to teach by teaching you. Watch. Um, let's say that you and four other people were sitting in a room at a hospital and all of you needed a kidney. All of you needed a kidney. Y'all needed the same type of kidney. And I was a hospital staff member and I walked into that room and said, we have one kidney. The person who will be receiving it is, I would have all four of your undivided attention at that point. You'd be like, I hope it's me. I don't care. Say it, but God, I'm going to listen because it might be me. right? So the more compelling the subject matter is to the student, the less important it is for the teacher to deliver it with like really pizzazz and oomph and all that other stuff. Okay. Here's the interesting thing. When the teacher is passionate about the material, And when the teacher has actual knowledge and experience with that material, the teacher is a normal person and talks about it and they're excited about it and they want the student to learn it because they enjoy it. Now, if the student is there by choice, then the student is also pulling that information and the teacher can see the student gaining the knowledge that's very important to the teacher that clearly is very important to the student and all of a sudden there's a symbiotic relationship there and it's exciting for both of them even if they're not super with their delivery or their reception. Doesn't matter because both of them are excited about it. And then if the teacher encourages the student to start teaching as quickly as possible. Okay? The student learns so much more. And then if the teacher and the student go on this journey of discovery together and are repeating this process over and over again, and students are creating students and sending new students back to teachers who sent new students out into the world, all of a sudden you get into a very sustainable Educational model. Students learning what they want from whom they want to learn from. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that awesome? Now, this is why teachers can't do that. You're a school teacher, especially if you're teaching, like, third grade. You pretty much teach all the subjects, I think, still at third grade. I don't know if they have kids changing classes at third grade or not. Um, I don't care. Let's say you're a, a high school teacher, and you have a teaching degree, 
and you can teach geology or history or math or physical education or whatever. And there's a position available for a certain subject. It's not really your passionate subject, so you take the job to make money. Or you're a history teacher, and you're a really good history teacher, but they need somebody to teach geology too, so all of a sudden you're teaching history half the day and geology the other half the day, and you really don't give a rip about geology. Not only that, but a shitload of your students don't give a shit about geology. And you're telling them it's important and it's necessary, and you don't believe it. And then you are passionate about history, but half your students don't give a rip about history. Well, additionally, there's all this shit in history. You're like, these kids would dig this stuff if I could just tell them about all this other stuff. And like, I'm sorry, you have to follow this common core curriculum and teach the shit we tell you to. So you can be as charismatic as anybody in the world and you still struggle in that environment because the whole system sucks. That's why we have to replace it. And we have to replace it by first developing people into teachers and understanding that teaching is not special. That we are fundamentally students and teachers as beings. That you were born to teach. Just like you were born to learn. Put a group of kids together. Have one kid know how to play a video game and the other kid don't know that video game at all. Has no idea. Never even saw that gaming system before. All the buttons are different than the one. How long does it take that kid to teach that other kid to play that game? What, like 45 freaking seconds? A-A-B-B-A. Oh, A-A-B-B-A. Can't remember Jack shit in school. A-A-B-B-A. Why? It's important. To him. And the teacher's passionate. And the student's passionate. And they're learning together. Oh, did you know there's a cheat code? How'd you find that? Oh, I just did this and it worked. Oh, okay. Right? So, do I think that's the most productive type of teaching? No, but it fundamentally seals the deal on this bullshit that only special people can teach. If you believe you can teach, you can teach. If you're passionate about something, you can teach about it. I mean, that's just it's just the way that it is. Now, do I think that if you want to be a really good teacher and you're going to be in somewhat of an academic situation where people are going to be seated and you're going to be in the front of a room and all the eyes are going to be on you, whether it's a bunch of kindergartners or a bunch of people from a corporate event, that you might do well if you're not a natural speaker to go to things like Toastmasters and learn to speak in front of groups and learn to... To not use so many placeholders. You know what I'm saying? 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 But, 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 okay. So to learn a natural flow of words. And one of the most important things that a person can learn as a public speaker is if you get stuck, just keep going. You'll unstick yourself. If you sit there and go, ah, what was I going to say? You're screwed and your mind locks. Just start talking about whatever you were talking about, tell a story, and, and go on. But the formula, again, develop passion for things that are important to you. Develop knowledge and experience about those things. Show and tell others about those things, and repeat. Well, it's a skill, so you have to develop a skill. What The skill development is the development of the passion, the develop of the knowledge, and the development of the experience. This creates skill. Whether the skill is the application of academic knowledge in an academic environment or the application of mechanical knowledge in a mechanical way. Doesn't matter. That is the skill development. What about the development of the skill as a teacher? 
that is in the showing and telling others about that actually develops the skill of teaching because the student that wants to learn says, I get it. And you go, okay, that, that, that method works. And the student goes, I, I don't get it. I don't understand what you're saying here. And instead of being indignant, well, you're just supposed to, the teacher in this natural voluntary educational engagement says, it's my obligation since this person wants to learn and is trying to figure out how to reach them. Let me explain it to you this way. That's the ultimate, that's the ultimate sign of a good teacher. The teacher that can say, it's like when, or let me explain to you this way, or have you ever been here and seen this? And then when the student says yes, they say, okay, now I've got a frame of reference. And then they come full forward with that. And the natural teaching process does that. But I do have specific skills and specific ways to develop those skills that make a person a better teacher as well for you today. So I have a second formula. And the very first one is learn to tell stories. Learn to tell stories. I don't, I'm not good at storytelling. How many times have you probably been, if you're a guy and you hunt, uh, it's telling a bunch of bullshit stories with guys at a hunting camp. The one that got away, the big buck that you didn't shoot, the big buck your buddy shot that you were going to shoot, whatever. It's just, it, human beings are storytellers. But learning to tell stories is the ultimate in the skill development world for the teacher. Because... I don't care how hands-on what you're doing is and how little academia is part of it, or if it's all academia, this is even more important. Sooner or later, students get into a position where they really want to understand what you're telling them. They, they, they're not you know, little Bobby that doesn't care, that's sucking his thumb and looking out the window. They're, I, I want to get this. Whether you're a karate teacher and... You've, you've given them a new form to get into, and they go to get in that form, and their form's not right. And when you correct their form physically, it feels wrong. And they don't understand, they're not questioning your teaching, they don't understand what they're, what they're doing wrong. They think, even though I look right right now, maybe I'm not right, because it doesn't feel right to me. Or is it okay, it also might be, is it okay that it doesn't feel right? Is this how it, is it, so they want the teacher to reassure them Am I doing this the right way? Am I really right, or are you just letting me get by? Right? That's a real student. They really want it up. And in that case, there's probably a story that can relate back, like the first time I did this, I thought so as well. And this is what I was feeling. Is that what you're feeling now? Right? So even something that hands-on, like a martial art, there's a need for this storytelling component. The reality, too, is that people are more likely to remember a story than a fact. So if I tell you the story of a war, you're probably going to remember when it happened. But if I just tell you that the war occurred between 1714 and 1721 and it was fought over... Uh, you, but if I tell you the actual story of the war... Why was there a war? How could a war have been avoided? What was the eventual outcome, and how did it impact the lives of individuals that were there? What changed in the world that's still around today because that happened? What can we see in the world that looks like that that might be a precursor to another war, and how could we avert that, and who will be affected? And if I can pull all that into a narrative... 
you'll know more about that war than you ever will from the boring pages of a typical textbook history book. I love history books. I hate textbooks. The problem with textbooks is the authors know that they're sold before they write them, so they don't give a shit if they're any good. They're just following a formula. Uh, it's probably the biggest scam on planet Earth is the textbook scam. Um, seriously, teachers should be selecting their own books, and students should be selecting their own books. And guess what? If you do things on your own, you can. That's that's part of the, the formula. Learn to tell stories. The other thing, and it goes right in with the stories, is learn to use analogies. And I think learning to use analogies is actually a little bit more important than just learning to tell stories. And the reason the analogy approach works so well is it relies upon something the student is familiar with. So if I was talking to you for instance, about, I don't know, the way a tree moves water from the root out of the ground, up the root, to the tree's point of germination, out to the cambium and up to the branches. It's actually a very complex thing. But if I can explain it to you as though it's going through pipes and tubes, and the different types pipes and tubes have different diameters and the tree is acting like a pump, and it's using the same principles that a pump does to move the water, and as the water goes through a, a wider pipe, it has a lower pressure than when it goes through a smaller pipe, and if you put your finger over the end of a garden hose and see how the pressure goes up because you've restricted it, that's how it's working. I actually need to explain more to you to, to go there. This is a very, I don't know why I picked that, honestly. It's a very deep um, involved thing with a torus pattern that results out to the other side of it. Um, but by saying it that way, if you're familiar with how pump works and you're familiar with how water pressure changes just by restricting how much can pass through an area, then it starts to make sense because you have a frame of reference that's familiar to you. If I am teaching you about how to develop a strike in the Russian Sistema martial arts. Not a conventional karate punch with a straight arm and everything's rigid all the way along, but this relaxed arm striking of Russian martial art. Initially, since it's counter to what you've always been taught about how to hit somebody, you will see it as flawed and it won't make sense. And since you don't believe in it, it'll be very hard for you to learn how to do it. I have two approaches. One, I can hit you if you'll let me. And you'll go, oh, I'd like to know how to do that. Or I can explain it to you with an analogy. So the analogy I've always used is let's imagine there's a dead guy laying there. Okay? People are familiar with dead. And he's, he's new dead. So he's not, there's no rigor mortis. He's like, like drunk dead. You know, when you try to carry a drunk, see, I'm using something you might be familiar with, or a, a sleeping child that seems so much heavier because a completely dead weight, right? Yeah, okay, so yeah. So let's say I took that dead guy, cut off his right arm, okay? And you can visualize that. It's kind of gruesome, but okay, I, it's not bleeding or anything, it's just a thought experiment. I got this dead weight arm. Now, how heavy do you think that arm is? 15, 20 pounds? There you go. It's about right. Now, let's say I take the fist of this guy's arm, since it won't stay in a fist anymore, and I put it into the shape of a fist, and I take duct tape, and I duct tape his fist like a ball. Can you get that? And the person goes, yeah, okay. So now let's say I pick it up, 
and I hold it by the bicep like a baseball bat, and I throw the arm so the elbow's forward over my shoulder. So now I've got his fist laying on my shoulder blade, and I'm holding his bicep. You got that? Yeah, okay. Now, I swing it like a bat. Just just gently, I just go, just like like a light throw of a sledgehammer. No real force behind it. Just Just hurl it over a little bit, give it a little bit of velocity, and let the weight take over. Got that? Yeah. And you are standing in front of me, and that taped-up fist hits you in the top of the head. They go, holy crap, there you go. That's how it works. And if that arm can act that way, cut off of a body, why can't you learn to make it work that way while it's still attached to your body? So now we've taken something people are familiar with, the concept of dead weight, basic leverage in mechanics, the way, let's say, a nunchuck works, a nunchuck Right, you've got two sticks pulled together by a chain, and if we use that chain and we let the kinetic energy build and come over, all right, and deliver that blow, it's it the the stick hits harder than if the sticks were a single stick of the same weight and same length. You get a greater impact when you flail with it because of that mechanic. That's how the arm works. So, assuming a person's familiar with dead weight and basic leverage principles, that analogy works. Now. The job of me as a teacher, if I say to somebody, have you ever picked up somebody with this completely dead weight? And they go, no. Well, I guess you haven't had many drinking parties or whatever then, but it's now up to me to do what? To figure out what will work in this analogy or give them the experience. So one way I could give them the experience is say, I'm going to stand here and I want you to put your arms around me like a bear hug and I want you to pick me up. Okay. And they pick you up. And I say, okay, I'm going to go completely dead rate on the ground. I want you to pick me up off the ground. And then just lay there like a lump. And let them see what it's like to try to pick somebody up that's just completely. So that they can get, see that's. So now if they don't have the experience, I can give it to them. But I can't always give them the experience. There's going to be times where it's not practical to give the experience I've chosen for my analogy. So now as a teacher. I have to reach deeper and find what they are familiar with. And the better I know my student, right, as a person, as a human being, the better I'm going to be at finding something that's going to work. And if you develop the ability to use the analogies, you're going to be very, very good at that. But it goes to the next skill that you need to develop. What you have to develop next is pattern recognition, This is something we talked about yesterday with seeing the pattern of control of society. This is how society is controlled. This is how you are manipulated. This is how you are kept divided. This is how your government gets what it wants from you. And once you see the pattern, you're like, oh, holy crap, there it is. right? And until you see the pattern, you don't know that it's there. Okay. Patterns and connections... Very big permaculture principle. And this is why I love permaculture. I'm not talking about permaculture today, but this is where it, this is where my ability to explain to you really comes from. Even though I've always had the skill, it, it is something that I'm lucky. I'm a very lucky person as someone who loves to teach that I've always had this ability to see connections and patterns. I just didn't have it formalized into a concept the way that I do now. When you can see connections, then it's very simple for you to find one. It works for your student. So if you're able to see that A is related to Z, even though no one else can see how A is related to Z, 
And you can explain how to get from A to Z without going to B, C, D, E, how to make a direct linear connection between these two concepts. Maybe it's A to M to Z, right? There's this linchpin in the middle that connects the two and show how the two correlate. It opens a student to the same thing, and now we're really learning. Because if all I'm doing is teaching you facts and figures or skills even, you only have the ability to do or say that which I've taught you to do or say. And I haven't educated you. In a sense, I've programmed you. And that's what most educational methods are. They're a programming of the student both in behavior and academically. So I'm programming the student to sit when the bell rings, and I'm programming the student to answer two plus two with four. Okay? And then I'll trick myself into thinking I'm, I'm creating critical thinking by coming up with common core math that makes two plus two complicated when it's not. Where if I'm teaching the student to make connections, if two plus two is four, then what's four plus four? And if two plus two is four, how does that apply to my life? How many twos do I see around me? How many pairs do I see around me? What's a pair? Not the fruit. What's a pair? What does that mean that there's two? How many places are there pairs in the world? And why are those pairs there? What's unique about that? That student starts to look around and see the concept of pairing. Male and female. Hot and cold. Wet and dry. That's way more important than four. That doesn't mean you don't learn four, but it's way more important than four. That that's because if you if you if a, a, a person that gets that will figure out four. There's two there and two there. One, two, three, four. Oh, okay. Fours. What's unique about that? It's not anywhere near as interesting as two, is it? The duality concept. So now I've gone from a simple math memorization, 2 plus 2 is 4, to the duality of all things in the world, including spirit. Now I have a way to see connections to everything that's out there. It probably means then that almost everything has a counter. Every opinion has a counter opinion. It comes in pairs. Every emotion has a counter emotion. They come in pairs. Happiness Sadness come in pairs. Where else do I see a pair? See, the person that wants that switched on in the brain, you're going to have a hard time walking through the rest of the freaking day now without going, oh, there's a pair there. Or what's the counter to this? That's just one example of connecting things, the connections and patterns. What is the pattern of a tree? How does it branch? Okay, where else do I see that pattern? Now, as a teacher, I might then say, I'm trying to teach this student how to develop this handle for a tool. And it's like a branch. And a branch that bends this way will break in the wind, and a branch that bends this way will be strong in the wind. And I could show my student the branch in the tree and say, which of those two branches do you think is more likely to break if it gets weighted down with snow? And that student looks and can see the pattern and goes, oh, this one. Well, if we build this tool handle this way, and the stress is like this upon it when it's being used, 
it's more likely to crack. And that's why we don't do that. That's why we've put this certain master's touch in the shape of this handle. I don't know if that's a real analogy or not, but it's the type of thing that I'm talking about. And you have to see the patterns and connections so that you can use them in your teaching. It's probably the most valuable thing you can learn teaching, learning, doing, being is pattern and connection. Once you have that, it becomes very difficult for anybody to bullshit you anymore. Because when they start you see here's the here's the other side of this. As you teach, you become much more intelligent. A fundamental reality is this. If I show you something, just show it to you. Hold up a card with a phrase on it or tie a knot. I'll just show it to you. That's all I do is show it to you. You have a certain based on your natural memory, a certain likelihood of remembrance. But it gets pretty constant after that. If I show you and then tell you additionally, you, it goes up by a factor of about 10 that you'll remember it. If I show you, tell you, and make you do it, it goes up by another factor of 10. 10 times 10, 100. If I show you, tell you, have you do it, and then have you show me how to do it, it goes up by another factor of 10, 100 times 10, 1,000. And that means that we actually do our greatest learning while teaching, not just as some metaphorical concept, but in actual concrete and measurable ways. This is very well known in the military. First time I learned to tie a Swiss seat, right? Which those of you who know how to repel know how to do that. I show you everything to do, and then guy shows you how to tie the knot. Says right over left, left over right. Repeat it back to me. You repeat it back to him. Okay, untie it. Show me how to do it. Okay, boom. I could tie one tomorrow. Haven't done it for years. Why? The minute you teach it to somebody, it's cemented into your brain. You can't get rid of it. It's there forever. I didn't know I was going to talk to you about that one today. As soon as I brought up the concept, I'm back to that moment. I wasn't even in the Army yet. This is what was called the DEP, Delayed Entry Program, which is where you've signed up, you're going to go, you know when you're going to go, and you're not going yet because you're still in school, for, in my instance. It's like you're going to graduate, have a little bit of your summer, and then you're going to go off to basic. And um, they had through the recruiting office where you get together with other guys that were going to go, and learn skills. And we went out and we learned to rappel off this bridge up in hometown Pennsylvania. And this guy that was from the Army, uh, I think he was actually a ranger, uh, that was teaching us to rappel, used that method to teach me at 17 how to tie that rig. And it stayed with me since 17. I'm, I'm in my 40s now. And that's because I was forced to teach it back. So the actual reason... To be a great teacher is a little bit selfish. It's so that you will know more. It's so that you'll be more skilled, that you'll have more knowledge, that you'll be better at everything that you do if you're a good teacher. Kind of bringing it full circle back to the beginning, because I want to talk now about why this is important, why this is a survival topic, um, how this concept can actually change the world for the better. You know how in the beginning I said what teachers meant when they said they wanted parents involved in education isn't what you might think it would mean. It doesn't really mean they want you involved in the 
education of the children. They want you involved in the behavioral control of the children. They want you to make sure that the child does what they've said the child's supposed to do. Okay? To be fair to the individual teachers, most of them don't know that. They don't know that's what they mean. They're so institutionalized into a system that's told them how special they are and how they're underpaid and underappreciated and they do the most important work in the world and the things that aren't going right in the classroom are not their fault, it's your fault. They believe that. And when they say, we want parents involved, they don't, they've, most of them have never sat down and thought about the fact that they don't actually want the, the parent educating. They want the parent to be responsible for the student's compliance. They're not bad people. They don't know that. But that's what the system wants. The system wants compliance, and the parent is one means of the, uh, the, the enforcement of compliance. So is punishment by the school. So is fear of punishment by the school. So is law enforcement now, because schools can't even get shit done on their own. They've got to bring cops in to get shit done. Um, and that, that's, that's a message for you guys in the education system that the students no longer respect you, and that's because you're no longer earning respect, you're demanding it. That's another thing. A good teacher knows you earn respect. You don't require it. doesn't work that way. Now, there might be a certain level of respect you expect from a student the day they show up if they've chosen you. If you've chosen me, you must think I know what I'm doing. I need you to trust me. I need you to follow my instructions. That doesn't mean you don't question them. Maybe you just don't question them on my time. But again, the teacher doesn't know this. The teacher that says, I want my parents more involved in their child's education, doesn't know when they say it what they're actually saying. They, if you're a teacher and you're still listening today, you've probably never thought about it that way. And I guarantee you, if you soul-search that, you'll realize that's what you're saying. I want the parent to ensure compliance. And if we live in a world where people believe that teaching is something done only by special people called teachers, karate teachers teach karate and discipline, but they don't teach mathematics. Really? I learned a lot about counting to 50 on my knuckles. I'm a karate teacher. <laughs> I started to learn a lot about mathematics with subtraction when We were doing a certain number of reps, and I wanted to know how many were left before I could be finished. Just saying. <laughs> so, you know, they do. But we have this thing like, okay, so you're a wilderness teacher. So that person's qualified to teach about wilderness. That person's a school teacher, so they're qualified to teach at a school. And this is a ridiculous, bullshit way to live. And if every person out there today listening just in this audience said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take Jack's crazy-ass advice and I'm going to become a teacher. I don't know exactly even what I'm going to teach yet, but I'm going to figure out stuff and I'm going to start teaching people. Whoever wants, And I'm not going to force it on anybody. I'm not going to get Messiah Complex. I'm not going to go out and find something I'm really passionate about and love and learn all about it and then go verbally puke on people that don't care. Because they're not passionate about that. I'm going to become passionate and knowledge and skilled in, in as many areas as make sense for me. And I'm going to seek out people that want to know more about that. And I'm going to teach them and I'm going to learn for them. There's a hundred thousand people listening to this show. If every one of you did that, we would radically transform the planet in ten years. It's contagious. 
And with 100,000 people, there'd be at least one person in every relevant subject on planet Earth out there on fire teaching other people about it. And all of a sudden, people start going, you know what, I learned more from that dude over there than I did in school. Maybe I'm going to have my kid talk to somebody like that instead. We live in a society where people are programmed. They're not taught. They're programmed like a computer. Your body is the hardware, and they install the software of their choosing. And this software installation process is the operating system, okay, is the school system. That's, that's the installation of, like, Windows, right, or, or, or Leopard or whatever Apple's on now, right, whatever they call it. That's the, that's the OS. So that makes the, the rest of the programming run. So we learn to show up on time. We learn to tie our shoes the right way. We learn to dress the right way that the society tells us to. We learn that people in authority are not to be questions, that we're to do what we're told. We learn all these things to follow the commands of the keystrokes. And that makes us susceptible to all the other programming in the world. The good student is the one that always believes the bullshit put in front of them on the news. I don't mean the good student like the student that does well. I mean the good student that the teacher would say, what do you think about Johnny? He's a great student. Good student. Sometimes he doesn't get an A. You know, sometimes he gets a B. Occasionally C's. But, but good student. Tries hard, does what he's asked to do, gives full effort, listens, behaves, raises his hand when he has to take a piss. Never causes any trouble. Great student. That person screwed. Screwed in life. They'll believe anything authority figures tell them. Because the operating system is flawless, according to the programmer at that point. So now we can teach you all day long without you knowing you're being taught. We'll teach you to be afraid of ISIS today and somebody else tomorrow when ISIS is no longer useful to us. We'll teach you that you have to always do what a police officer says. We'll teach you to comply. And if you don't comply, we'll hit you with a stick. And that'll teach you to obey. And those of you that really won't obey, we'll put you in a room. We'll feed you three meals a day. And when you want to get out, you'll have to obey. Is that school or jail? I'm not sure. But it's one of those. It all depends. And we're susceptible to this because we know of no other way to learn. And we assign to teachers this magical quality, this special ability. Well, I don't have a certificate in teaching. I'm not licensed by the state of Texas or certified by the state of Texas or whatever the Asklons in Austin call it in this state. I don't have that credential. I've never been hired by a school to teach people. That's not exactly true. I've guest lectured at a couple colleges in my field of choice at the time, which was fiber optics. But it wasn't really like a teaching teaching. But did you learn anything from me today? If so, I've taught you. Do your kids know how to tie their shoes? Did you show them how to do that? You're a teacher. Think about that. There's, you know, sayings that the establishment's proud of, but they don't mean it. The, the child's first teacher is the parent. Something they all like, they have to have that on a little plaque in the walls of the schools and all. They don't mean it. Because as soon as you're teaching your, your child something that they don't agree with, what do they say? You're a, you're a bad parent. They get to call CPS in. This guy's teaching them like religious nutjob stuff. 
right? And even though I don't share that religious belief with you, I think you have every right in the world to teach your, your child what you believe. Sooner or later, they're going to grow up and decide whether they choose to believe it to or not. I, don't, I certainly don't want the school saying, you, you can't tell them that the creationism's real. That's damaging to their brain. I don't want that. I think it's not happening. It is. So how can you say the child's first teacher is the parent when, when the parent teaches something you don't agree with, you immediately attack the parent? See, those two, the action is incongruent with the statement. So you have to ask yourself, why is the establishment, and it's the system, so afraid of the parent teaching counter to the institution? Because it works. See, it creates this thing called independent thought. This is why I believe it would radically transform the world if people would just take upon themselves the basic teaching formula. Develop passion for things that are important to you. Develop knowledge and experience about those things. Show and tell others about them and repeat that. You can't do that without critical analysis, independent thinking, learning to tell stories and use analogies, seeing connections and patterns, and, 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 and developing the basic trivium of education, which is grammar, rhetoric, and logic. We've even made words that are not bad words, bad words. Rhetoric. When you hear rhetoric, it has an almost immediate, immediate negative connotation. That's just rhetoric. Most people that say that don't even know what the hell rhetoric is. The next time somebody says, that's just rhetoric, I want you to think about this definition. Rhetoric. Noun. The art of effective or persuasive thinking, speaking or writing, especially the use of figures of speech and other compositional techniques. That's nothing but the effective and persuasive use of language. <laughs> That's just compositional thinking. Because they've added a new definition, often regarded as lacking in sincerity or meaningful context. But that's not what rhetoric is. So does anybody aspire anymore to master rhetoric? Said that way. No, because we've polluted the word. Why would your society pollute the concept of effective speaking and writing, especially the use of figures of speech and other compositional techniques? Why would, why would your society degrade that? Because rhetoric leads to logic. If I'm going to explain it, I have to check my rhetoric with my logic. And when I'm listening to somebody else explain things, I have to check their rhetoric with my logic. I can't just say it's empty rhetoric. right? Oh, it's just Well, we can. We can program people to believe that. See, your operation system's installed by the school system, the indoctrination center. And then maybe you go to college and get an upgrade to your operating system. And then we'll just tell you on TV over and over again, Rhetoric is bad. Rhetoric is bad. Rhetoric is bad. Command accepted. Rhetoric is bad. And that's you, a walking zombie. Because you're not teaching. If you were teaching, you'd have to use rhetoric. Then you might know what it means. And you'd have to check your rhetoric with logic. And <gasps> if you check your rhetoric with logic, if you train yourself that I'm making this case, hold on, how do I know my case is valid? Let me find and fact-check my own claims. Let me see how they actually were applied. Has anybody else done this? Am I the only one successful with this? Have other people done this successfully? Does this make sense? Okay, yes, it does. Now I'm going to go forward with my rhetoric, and I'm going to explain my position. 
I've done my research, I've understood language, and I've used the understanding of language and experience to gain knowledge, which I'm now expanding through rhetoric, checked by logic. If I'm going to do that with myself, what do you think I'm going to do with you and your rhetoric? Don't you think I'm going to go, oh, I see, this is a very persuasive argument that they're making. Let me use my logic to fact-check that rhetoric and see if it marries up and matches my acceptance right now. I feel like this is true, but I don't know that I... Don't you think if I'm going to check my own rhetoric, I'm going to check yours? Now, if you're an institutionalized society that has built a system based on compliance, do you want a society of people that not only can be persuasive in speaking and writing as an art, which is what rhetoric really is, it's an art, that have, have taken the persuasive speaking and writing ability and the compositional techniques <laughs> and figures of, of speech to a way where they're actually very effective communicators of an idea and yet have the ability to have self-discipline and check their own rhetoric with logic and check the, the rhetoric of others with logic. Do you want that? Okay, so what do you have to do in that society? You have to create a profession of teachers, and you have to teach the society that only these people are qualified to teach. And they've been through our rigorous protocols, which means we've programmed them very, very well, And we've told them what to teach you and how to do it. And they're going to do things the way we say. And that's how you know you can trust them. Because you can always trust your government and your institutions. <laughs> yeah. And then you have to drive out logic and rhetoric. You pay lip service to grammar. That's how you run and control a society. So when you say, well, if they have us that tightly controlled, how do we fight back? Teach. The children, well, you know. <laughs> Notice it is teach your children. I think it's teach your children well, isn't it? I don't really know. I've no, That's an old song. It is your Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. I think I'll, I'll end the show today playing that song. Hopefully nobody will sue me over it. Um, but it's teach your children well. I think that's very important, and I think that a lot of people in society might have had the same question I did right there. Is it teach the children well or teach your children well? See, what we've, what we've done is exactly that. We've lost. We've lost the ethic in this song. Teach your children well. We're going to reform the education system so that we can teach the children. But not teach our children. Teach your children. Remember, folks, when they say they want you involved in education, they want you involved in the behavioral behavioral component, not the academic component. The biggest reason for you to learn how to teach is because you'll learn so much by teaching. And the big thing you'll learn is to check things with logic and critical thinking. And that's why society is not real interested in this. Because it causes problems. Be a problem. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. You who are on the road must have a code that you can live by. 
and so become yourself because the past is just a goodbye teach your children well their father's hell did slowly go by and feed them on your dreams the one they fix the one you know by don't you ever ask them why if they told you you would cry so just look at them and sigh and know they love you and you Look at them and sigh. 